And now, coming to you live from the Gershwin Room, high above the Coot Street Motel 6, it's Jonathan Strand and Gary K. Wolf on the Coot Street Podcast! And here we are, just the two of us again. None of those irritating guests. It's like old times. Good old times. Good to see you. Um, yeah, we can actually see each other, and it's not messing up our bandwidth. Uh, For the moment. This doesn't mean anything to people who don't have to deal with this daily. But, uh, so it's time for World Fantasy nominations now? You just reminded everybody of that on Facebook a few days ago. This is our incredibly smooth segue, listeners, from a conversation we're having just moments before we started the recording. In, into what we're going to talk about today. And yes, you're right, Gary. I was going through bits and pieces on Facebook, and I saw that on May the 31st, I think it is, uh, nominations slash votes or whatever you want to call them for the 2014 World Fantasy Awards close. And anyone who was a member of the 2013, 14, or 15 World Fantasy conventions is eligible to vote or nominate. And very importantly, first of all, you can nominate free of charge, you can nominate via email, and you can nominate anything you want that was published or happened in 2014. And I think according to the rules of World Fantasy, two, out, two of the nominees in each category are public nominees, and That's three correct. are judges' nominees. Yeah, basically what, what the public vote does is it votes two items onto the final ballot, which will then be decided by the judges. And I can, uh, probably you'll recall this as well, from your own perspective as a judge, what you're hoping is that the staggering good taste of the audience will overlap your taste so you don't lose any selections on the ballot. Exactly. That's the first thing you think. And the second thing you think is um, that there are... Well, people, I've heard people ask me whether a public nomination makes any difference because the judges are going to make the final selection anyway. And my answer to that, having talked to a number of different judges over the years, is it, it pretty much depends entirely on the group of judges that year. Mm, it does. And in other words, wildly popular uh, bestsellers, which would get nominations. And not not talking about any particular work or its quality of or lack thereof, but if something comes out from Stephen King or Neil Gaiman in a year, it's probably going to get a public nomination. It has a reasonable shot, though. You can't be sure. Right, and it may very well deserve such a nomination. Oh yeah. If, uh, well, I'll give you an example. I expect this year that Rogues by Garda Dozois and George R. R. Martin, their fantasy anthology, will make the final ballot. It was a New York Times bestseller, and it's a good book. Which are always two good things to have going for it. But there's, there's always a suspicion that the judges you know, are going to second-guess the popular vote. On the other hand, the world fantasy system, having been a judge and not wanting to be one again, because it was a lot of work... Um, does have some protections against the sort of things that have happened to the Hugo Awards. Well, I think any uh, juried award has that kind of protection. On the other hand, if you like to protect the other perspective, uh, Gary, it puts it solely in the hands of the gatekeepers to make the decisions. Well, that's true, but then that, that, that raises the usual question we have with any kind of award. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So I, I look at it and I go, look, it's a different approach. There is one thing that I've started to take as my own personal approach to these awards and that is mm-hmm. i've made my decision what i think each of them is for to some degree and i'm now voting accordingly so for example when i nominated for the hugo awards i decided that for me the hugo award is a science fiction award that's its history so i uh-huh. didn't nominate any fantasy works 
I can I can understand that because uh, it does strike me when I was going over the list, I was going over the Locust recommended reading list, that the World Fantasy Awards have specifically historically excluded science fiction by definition, although they include horror by definition, hmm. and some horror bleeds into science fiction. The Hugos have now become a science fiction and fantasy award, and there are people who would say you're being unfair by by being an old-fashioned constructionist and saying you think it's a science fiction award, and therefore you're not going to nominate fantasy. Well, and to, to which I can say, yes, you're right. I mean, that's what it, what's happening, yes. Uh, yes, they absolutely changed the purpose of the awards. They are now a fantasy and science fiction award. I don't agree with that. Uh, I like having an award for science fiction. So I will vote for science fiction. That's well, called that's, that's called nominating and voting. I mean, yay! Symbol. I I'm playing devil's advocate. I, I tend to. Agree. I mean, if somebody writes a strong fantasy novel, um, they now have a good chance of being nominated for both a world fantasy and a Hugo. If somebody writes a really strong science fiction novel, they only have the chance at the Hugo and the Nebula. Does the Nebula include? Yeah, Nebula includes it's fantasy fans, now yeah. too. But you do have the John W. Campbell, which just came out recently. The, you know, the long list for that came out just recently. And there are other awards around. I mean, not, not the big two, if you like, of the Hugo Nebula, but still. And for the World Fantasy Award, when I put my own ballot in this week, and that's what prompted me to post it, uh, or post about it on Facebook, I took the very hardline view that I wouldn't nominate horror or dark fantasy, only fantasy. Really? Yes. And I also wouldn't nominate mixed Things. So, for example, if there was an anthology, like, say, my own year's best science fiction and fantasy, uh-huh. I wouldn't nominate it because it was um, science fiction. However, I would nominate the editor uh, for best professional achievement because it was part of what they were doing was fantasy related. So, for example, I'm sorry. Okay. So, for example, I would nominate, say, Rich Horton's The, the Best Science Fiction and Fantasy of the Year. Uh, uh-huh. I would not nominate for that best anthology because it's a mixed anthology. However, I would nominate uh, Rich for editing anthologies. This is an example. But you wouldn't, you wouldn't nominate uh, the best horror of the year? No. No. Well, now, this is interesting because historically, the World Fantasy Award, the further you go back into the history, the more it looks like a horror award. Absolutely. And if they want to change the name of it to the World Horror Award... Um, I'll totally vote differently. Mm-hmm. But, and I have to say, this is a somewhat new approach for me. I just, I just looked at this and I thought, you know, I've just voted for the Hugos, and I sat there and I nutted through what I felt, and I read or, I, I read or looked at the novel nominees, for example, quite closely. Um, and you can hear us talk about those in the earlier podcast about this. Um, and I had to make a decision between the Kathleen Addis- or Catherine Addison book, The Goblin Emperor, which is a good book, uh, Sushin Lu's The Three-Body Problem, and Anne Leckie's Ancillary Sword, right? Mm. Now, by any ma- m- you know, measure of it, The Addison is not a science fiction book. Right. And so I preferenced it below the other two for that reason. And I preferenced, well, I'm happy enough to say, the Sushin Lu book, uh, because I think it's the most interesting science fiction book on the ballot. And I would act well, accordingly with the World Fantasy Awards. So this is uh, the, the sort of thing that comes up um, <clears throat> repeatedly in the last few years. What you, in, in, in terms of, let's say, um, well, let's look at Andy Duncan and Ellen Clagis's What Color Springs, which won a World Fantasy Award but isn't even really a fantasy. 
So you would have eliminated that on genre considerations? Thanks for picking that example. Gee, (laughs) wow. Um, If you're listening, Ellen, this doesn't mean that I don't love you, because I do. Uh, No, I wouldn't have. And what's more, I think if you were to ask Ellen quietly in the bar, she probably would have said the same thing. I think she was delighted to to be nominated, thrilled to be nominated, Mm. and in many, many ways very worthy, because it's a terrific story. Uh, but I think she herself would have said, "But it's not really genre, except for maybe a tiny little element." Actually, I mean, she, 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 that, that, that's not really much of an issue. But it's, it's a sort no. of thing that comes up occasionally. It, it, it comes up with Karen Fowler, for example, not just in terms of her novel, but in terms of a, uh, a short story like uh, "What I Didn't See." Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's, it's a fairly common kind of thing. I was having a conversation with Nick for this past summer, and we were. Sitting out by the pool, you've got to get there. Talking to uh, Anne Leckie was there and Rachel Swirsky, and and I was making the argument that uh, that science fiction is is what I read. It's not necessarily what they write. And if yeah. I want to read something as a fantasy, and if I think it's better than the other fantasy stories, I don't have any problem with that. Yep, that's your call. And what's more, I want to be really clear. This is not a call to arms, Gary, for other nominate, nominee, nominators to follow my lead. Everyone should follow their own conscience, you know. Nominate what you want, as long as you love it and you actually read it, knock yourself out. But this yeah, is, and this I, I agree. I think that one of the things that uh, we should probably parenthetically note to our listeners right now is that we're not telling anybody, if we start thinking of possible nominees for the World Fantasy Award, which we're going to talk about in a minute, we're not telling people they should agree with us. Uh, I think one of the things that, um, that, that we've already seen, the, in the, the dangers of having slates, of having campaigns, of trying to persuade people to your way. I, I only enjoy talking about nominations with people that I tend to disagree with. Yeah. Which means you and I don't have much fun at all. <laughs> well, we have not fun at all, except you read a lot more short fiction than I do. That's so true. I kind of depend on uh, you know, to be honest, when I'm nominating things for a Hugo Award, uh, I am going to be nominating things that I've read in some anthology that you or Rich or Gardner or, or Ellen or somebody has put together because I'm not going to try to keep up with the short Sure, sure. Otherwise. So let me ask you this, actually. This is very unfair because you've not prepared for it and I've given it thought. Off the top of your head, do you have any feeling for what novels you might nominate for the best fantasy novel of 2014? One of them would be Bathing the Lion, I suppose. And Jonathan Carroll. <laughs> Fair enough. An interesting well, and perplexing novel. Everything by Jonathan Carroll is interesting and perplexing. <laughs> I, Jonathan Carroll fascinates me because I can't figure out how he does what he does, which in so many different ways ought not to work, and at least for me it always does. There, it, there, there are moments when he gets very sentimental. There, there are weird twisty turns in the plot that uh, seem completely arbitrary at the time. Uh, but there's something just very humane and sort of lovely about about the way he structures stories. I think that's true. I think there's a real <clears throat> pardon me. There's a real sensitivity and caring about his characters that comes through in the yes. stories he chooses to tell. And that genuine feeling of humanity is what enriches everything else that he puts into his stories. And that's been true since, you know, The Land of Laughs, through Voice of Our Shadow and on. I must admit, I've missed one or two of the later novels. 
you know, post White Apples, I think there's one or two I might not have read, but the early ones I think very highly of and love a great deal. And I think his short fiction is great. It is a really interesting short fiction. Um, so one of my personal regrets is there was a short story of his that I wanted to include in the best of the year that I couldn't persuade a co-editor about at the time. Um, huh. And yet I think it belonged there because I think he's a fair, he's a remarkable talent. And in fact, not only does he have Bathing the Lion due out, you know, come, that's come out this year, in 2014, eligible for the 2015 awards, but he's got a new novella out as well from Subterranean. Um, the t- Pitching the Dog. Yes. Which would also be eligible for the 2016 awards. And as I say, short fiction is always interesting. And I know we've talked about it, and I know that I'm the one who's dragged his heels, but we should have him on the podcast sometime in the next six months or so. But, but well, yes. we will try to say. So, okay, bathing the line. Also, speaking of which, uh, one of the things that's always confusing, and I'm not sure that the popular vote has any real effect on the Lifetime Achievement Award, <laughs> but Jonathan Carroll is of an age when he is, according to the rules of the World Fantasy Commission, eligible for a Lifetime Achievement Award as well. Yes. The, the all of the life achievement awards throughout the field are curious things. They are awarded That's to it. some degree by, it seems, unless you're in, yeah, in the middle of it, by whim. I've been in the middle of one such process, and it also felt a, a little bit whimsical because it came down to personal passion, you know. And in fact, sometimes it's, you know, you, you will look back at. I mean, the, the, I helped choose the 2001 World Fantasy Award Life Achievement Award winners. Uh-huh. And I was on the panel with Paula Garan and the late Graham Joyce and Stephen Erickson and um, Paul, Steve, me, somebody else. Dino Wynn Jones, the late Dino Wynn Jones. Ah, excellent. Uh, in fact, one Lifetime Achievement Award recipient there, one in Graham Joyce who should have received the, the, the Life Achievement Award and certainly would have had he lived long enough, in my opinion, and others who might be eligible. Now, Steve was a great advocate for Glenn Cook for life achievement. And, and I have to tell you, I was fairly ignorant of Glenn's work at that time. And mm-hmm. like, like, like you do, I mean, I, well, like I did, you know, like it's back then, young, headstrong, egotistical. I had people that I wanted to champion. Mm-hmm. And I didn't pay much attention. But in retrospect, Glenn was somebody who deserved serious attention. Uh, there is an issue, and people talk around this, and it's apropos you know, Graham Joyce and Lucia Shepard, for example, who mm. were unfortunately sort of, pardon me, taken away before they could win, you know, be given the award, yes. and now yes. aren't eligible. I mean, I think Lucius died the year before last. If you die, you're eligible in the year you die, which sounds really sort of bleak, but you know, for, if, if you died in January or February of 2015, you could win the 2015 Life Achievement Award that, that August or September. But that's the only exception. But if you died any time during 2014, you're ineligible? That's right, yes. That seems odd. Uh, put, put, it, put it this way, it sounds pretty strange and bleak, but you have to survive the year of eligibility. Um, I suppose there's a practical matter to that. It's technically an award for a living writer. Mm-hmm. And there are exceptions when somebody uh, will die... I mean, Terry Pratchett had already won one, but no, yeah. But um, but the idea is that people will die between the time they're nominated for the award or the name for the award and they actually get the award. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so this is probably... I, I can understand the argument. It's meant to be an award for a living writer. 
And if you start listing the people that the World Fantasy Awards have missed over the decades, it probably would be a pretty appalling list. Well, yeah, and this is the argument, I guess, for what you would call a an alumni induction at some point, just to sort of correct the balance and make sure that those people are in on some kind of what you know, some kind of Hall of Famey level. But it hasn't been done, and uh, I'm, I'm very iffy about that because one of the awards which I find most egregious has been. Uh, in the past has been the Author Emeritus Award from the Nebulous. Yeah. Which didn't, is just, didn't they just give that to Russ? Did they? There's, there's, well, there's one that's the Emeritus or something. It's, it's not an actual life achievement. It's more kind of, you were important, but we ignored you before kind of thing. It's, a, it's an award that says you're not going to get a life achievement award. It says you're not going to get a life achievement award and you won't die. Um, <laughs> well, except in the case of Russ, because she did. But that's, that's well, she mean. did. But I mean, I, I was I, I I I happened to be at the Nebula ceremonies twice uh, when um, when 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 the author emeritus or author emeriti were there, and uh, it was actually only the second time I ever talked to Robert Sheckley, and he was really befuddled uh, about <laughs> like oh okay so this is. This is like a consolation prize for not dying but not being good enough. And Daniel Keyes, who had also received an Author Emeritus Award, said, well, what's going on here? He's been writing mysteries. He's been writing nonfiction. He's been writing books about mental health. Because he stops writing science fiction 40 or 50 years ago doesn't mean he's retired as a writer. But he's, his attitude was absolutely correct. It's like, if I leave the field, it's like I've been disinherited by science fiction. <laughs> no son of mine. You are, you are off writing bad things now. Go. Okay. So let, let, let's pull this back a little bit. The reason that you segued so neatly from my comments about best novel to life achievement is that you want to make a case, don't you, Gary, that everyone out there should follow in lockstep mindlessly like clones and nominate the great Jonathan Carroll for life achievement. Is that correct? No, because I have a. <laughs> do I okay? Do I think that Jonathan Carroll has an interesting and varied enough body of work? His body of work covers a lot of the spectrum of what world fantasy does, uh, and like Graham Joyce in his early part of his career, people were thinking, "Well, is this is this a horror writer or is it a magic realist writer?" Um, so I think he's got a substantial body of work. He's uh, he's technically old enough, but it's not the only person I would think of as being deserving of, of a Life Achievement Award, and other people might have very persuasive arguments in another in another direction. Okay. Now, I have to say that if you want to actually mount a persuasive argument for Carroll, I would have said mm-hmm. that he came along in the... What? That, he started his career basically in the, the very beginning of the 1980s, in the mm-hmm. middle of a, a period where epic fantasy was on the rise and moving to commercial dom- domination of the field. Uh, mm-hmm. He wrote smart, sensitive novels that were quirky, that were um, perceptive, that were very different in the field. There was nothing really quite like them and really hasn't been since. His most mm-hmm. traditional novel was Land of Laughs, which is the cl- closest, almost, if you like, to a YA kind of adventure novel that you could imagine him ever writing. It, it being a novel about someone who wrote a classic children's novel. Right. But then you've got what they now call the Answered Prayers Sextet, which are also sort of dark, have harrowing elements, books like Bones of the Moon, Sleeping in Flame, Child Across the Sky, Outside of the Dog Museum. I mean, terrific, terrific major books. 
which yeah. remain in print on a reg to this day and are very popular through Europe and were up for the World Fantasy Award. I mean, here's a, he, I think he's won, he won once the World Fantasy Award and is a repeated nominee for the award. So I think he's very, very deserving, you know, but just based on the kind of work that he brought into the field and made part of the conversation of the field over the last 30 years. That's true, and I, that, that, that's my reasoning behind that. Um, but I thought of because I, I, I did this earlier. I was actually what happens to me is that I think somebody deserves a lifetime achievement award, and then um, free, as often as not, they've already got one. Uh, and this, I know this is a problem for judges because judges frequently overlook uh, writers or other deserving people simply because yep. of assumptions. I've got two other possible suggestions for for life achievement. Yep. And I can, they're completely different kinds of arguments. You can't compare them with Jonathan Carroll in any way. One would be controversial to the administration of the World Fantasy Awards, but I think somebody who's deserving very seriously of consideration is Hayao Miyazaki. He was nominated or considered. Uh, he was a nominee for um, Special Award Professional the year I was judged. I don't think he's been a nominee for a Life Achievement Award, but maybe he has. Isn't the argument against people like Miyazaki, and I don't disagree with you, but isn't the argument against them that it doesn't really mean anything to them? Well, I mean, you know, we didn't exactly make Stephen King's weekend when we gave him a World Fantasy Award, did we? It's, uh, <laughs> it's, it's one of the things... You can't consider that. I mean, if you considered that... Why would there even be a dramatic presentation long-form category in the Hugo Awards? Yeah. Has anybody won? Has Steven Spielberg ever noticed that he's been nominated for Hugos? I'm sure he hasn't. My, ar- my argument for Miyazaki is that he is a writer. He's created a, a very impressive body of work, which arguably has influenced other writers, not just filmmakers. The, the, the sense of world fantasy has been that it's meant to be a literature award and not a film award. Mm-hmm. And I understand that argument. But if you have a body of written work which expresses itself through film, uh, then I think that's worth considering. Fair enough. I can see that point. And certainly it's a, a major career. What about um, <laughs> toilers in the commercial side of the field a little bit? I mean, I'm thinking about, uh, in some ways, Catherine Kurtz was a, a pioneer in the 1980s. Wouldn't, mm-hmm. Shouldn't she be considered? Um what about C.J. Cherry, a, a hobby horse of mine, who should be a Sifwa Grant Master already, who's in her 70s and wrote a number of major works of fantasy and science fantasy? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and in fact, one of the names on my list this year was um, Stephen Donaldson. That was on my list, too. I was going to get to that. I've got two more names to get to. Okay, let's get and to your names. Or knock, um, them, knock them down fast. <laughs> okay. Knock them down. Okay, one of them. Okay, here's one. Ginger Buchanan. Worthy without a doubt. That's interesting. I don't know that we've they've typically acknowledged editors. I guess Betty Ballantyne received the World Fantasy Betty Award, Ballantyne. and Ed Furman received the World Fantasy Award. Um, but see, this is something, and it talks back to what I was talking about earlier. One thing that confuses nominators, I think, is the science fiction versus the fantasy uh, component. I mean, Ginger, her contribution to the field as an editor at Ace is enormous. How much of that is science fiction? How much of that is fantasy? The same question comes up when you talk about C.J. Cherry, who's written 
a bulk well, of science fiction. The same question comes up. Robert Silverberg has actually, written terrific Nor, nor, you see, the, the point where I disagree with you there is... I can sit there and I can say, okay, C.J. Cherry wrote The Chronicles of Morgaine. She wrote um, her uh, Dreaming Tree series. She wrote, wrote Paladin. She wrote the Rosalka books. She wrote the Fortress of uh, whatever it was, the Fortress of Time books. She wrote a whole se- sequence of fantasy novels. There's a body of fantasy achievement I can point to. Similarly for whoever else. In the case of someone like Ginger, who is very worthy, right, um, mm-hmm. I still I couldn't tell you what her actual impact on fantasy was. I mean, it, it's something worth investigating, and I did not look to see who she edited, what she edited. She she just ended a very distinguished career uh, that um, it, it, it seems to me had to be a mix of fantasy and science fiction. But I don't know which is which. Uh, I do think the question comes up generally that even though you make a very persuasive case for Cherry, I'm going to bet that most readers are most familiar with her science fiction. Sure. And I think that's the case. It's always the case when you've got an award for fantasy and you have people um, moving back and forth between fantasy and science fiction. I, I mentioned Silverberg, for example. Yes. Lord Valentine's Castle series. Uh, on the other hand, I think they did give an award to Anne McCaffrey. Who they did. I recall argued that she shouldn't have it because she writes only science fiction. Yes, I think that's exactly what she did. Which you could argue is either honest or graceless. I'm not really sure which. Um. <laughs> I, I, I remember at some point reading a transcript of her acceptance speech. And it, was, it was gracious, but it was yeah. clear that she had been... Uh, she was tired of a whole generation of readers who didn't realize that her dragons were science fiction dragons. Yeah. That's because that was mostly she who was convinced about it and nobody else. Anyway, well, set that no, aside. But, but, but her career before the Dragon series was yeah. pretty much all. And she wrote a good chunk of science fiction, there's no doubt. Um, Mary Stewart should have received the World Fantasy Lifetime Achievement Award. Absolutely. Uh, I don't know if she's yet passed away, I forget, but I know that she was alive until quite recently. Mm-hmm. Um, but then that's like you sort of... Do you sit there and run a census? Do you sit there and go, well, hang on. So, so-and-so, like, I don't think Robert Silverberg has, ever, has won the World Fantasy Life Achievement Award, right? Now, Bob is 80. Oh. Turned 80 no. this year, I think. Or turns 80 this year. Uh, strikes me that if you're going to give him a Life Achievement Award, now is the time. That's a good argument. And as an, I mean, this is, is after... I mean, okay, to make the uh, Silverberg case, there was earlier fantasy, but there was also, as you say, both the Valentine's Castle books, which are more science fantasy than straight fantasy, but anyway. Yeah, they're big world stories. And then you have uh, the Legends books, which were his. The Legends anthologies. Yeah, the anthologies. And as an anthologist, he probably deserves it. So, in fact, I might even switch my entire allegiance here and get behind the better give Bob one now because he's 80. Also means that then he would come to World Fantasy and then I could see him and not have to go to California. So that'd be good. Well, yeah, but he's he's, he's doing well for 80. I mean, I don't... He's, I, he's I, very high and healthy. You were saying right now. That we, but you mentioned him as an anthologist in the universe series because we've talked before about various important series, the most influential of which were Damon Knight and, and, and Terry Carr series. But his, the Silverberg's universe series had No, no, very, Silverberg's New Dimension series. New Dimensions. I'm Terry sorry, Carr's new, universe. Terry Carr's universe, Silverberg's New Dimensions, right. That's okay. But uh, they're, they're, they're both... They're both um, 
anthology series that sort of pushed the envelope between science fiction and fantasy and other things. And I could put it through this way. If George R. R. Martin, who has received a Life Achievement Award, can mm. receive a Life Achievement Award, Silverberg should get one. That's a good point. That's a good point, because George's career was very heavily science fiction before he moved to Hollywood. Mm. Absolutely. So, so, big case for Bob. Lesser case for Jonathan Carroll, who is you know fifteen years younger after all. Um, <laughs> well, it is a factor, isn't it? I mean, it was a fact. I can tell you when we sat there uh, in two thousand and one trying to work out who to give the World Fantasy Life Achievement Award to, we took into account: are they likely to die soon? Well, yeah, which uh, sounds uh, grim, uh, but you know. Well, when you get writers in there, I mean, the, the point about uh, Mary Stewart, for example, who was. 90-something a few years ago. I mean, if she's, uh, look it up and see if she's still alive. Because um, there's no doubt that that was an influential career, but I have a feeling that it's somebody who's long since left the, the field behind. Probably true. Um, I don't... You know, she died last year. Oh, she did? Okay. So I kept going, saying to people, in fact, I remember saying when I first realized she was still alive in her late 80s that they should have given her the award when I was on that jury back in the day. Uh, so, I don't know, there's always people to argue for. I mean... Well, Susan Cooper finally got one, and she was one of the people that had been around, you know, with a career that went back. I mean, this is the other thing that happens sometimes, and I am glad to see people recognize uh, who whose major work may be decades in the past. Lloyd Alexander, well, Lloyd, he came back into the field, but yep. uh, people like uh, like him and Susan Cooper are are the formative writers of a generation of contemporary fantasy and science fiction writers. Yep. And I think the same thing can be true for editors. I mean, I was looking up some other names of people who I think are eventually going to have to be considered, but they're not old enough yet. Yep. Harry Wendling isn't old enough yet. Well, she's in her mid-60s. Is she? I think you'll find she is, my friend. I mean, I don't want to age, Terry. Uh, so I, I was under the impression she was not yet 16. I thought she and Ellen Datlow were of about the same vintage. I could be completely wrong. Uh, hang on, 50. Mm-hmm. You're right, actually. No, you're right. I'm wrong. I take it back. She is younger. So maybe not quite yet. Here's one that will be controversial, but I think actually is compelling. Mm-hmm. And a hands down no brainer that will never happen. Oh, Terry Brooks should get the World Fantasy Life Achievement Award. Um, it probably will never happen. But isn't are we getting into the same sort of discussion we have with Stephen R. Donaldson? Stephen R. Donaldson is a more acclaimed writer, and he's already won a, a, a World Fantasy Award for his own work. That's true. Yeah. Um, Terry Brooks. If you set aside your views of his writing on a line-by-line level, if you have negative views, nonetheless was a pioneer of sorts. He was the one who pioneered popular epic fantasy post-Tolkien. I think you could argue either way. I mean, did he simply... Was he the first one of the first authors to, um, in effect, cash in on the fact that Tolkien had become a phenomenon in the 60s, and they needed more things like that. And, uh, and he, he came, came along and, and did it very successfully. I mean, there, there were elements of the first uh, Stephen Donaldson books that are clear echoes of Tolkien as well. So to some extent, there was a moment in time when 
the epic fantasy um, field had been created essentially by Ballantine Books with Tolkien and later with uh, the Ballantine Adult Fantasy series. And here was somebody who could satisfy that need in a, in a way which seemed to me to be repetitive. I read the first couple of books way back when, yeah. and, and I didn't find them gracefully written. Uh, but they were good stories. Um, so the, the question that you're raising is an interesting one. Uh, do you give somebody uh, a Lifetime Achievement Award because of the kind of cultural and economic impact they have on the field, regardless of what you believe to be the quality of their individual works? Yeah. And I think there's a case for doing so. I mean, I think that Stephen R. Donaldson, I think David Eddings, I think Raymond E. Feist, I think Terry Brooks, these men in their own way, along with others, uh-huh. had, had a, a real impact on the, on the fantasy field. And, you know, just as, I mean, people that we haven't nominated and don't talk about, uh, Gary Gygax, Steve Jackson, you know, you could argue that Gary Gygax and Steve Jackson and that group of gaming writers from the 1980s who wrote Dungeons and Dragons and those sorts of things, and I confess I'm not well informed about who they are, but I'm aware they existed, had an enormous impact on the current generation of fantasy writers, on the, on, on, yeah, on the Joe on the Abercrombie generation. Right, enormous impact. Right, but again, you're, you're you're sort of circling around the actual details about the work. And now you're yeah, you, I know. You, you, well, well, but economic influence, talk about influence on younger writers, all of which is very much true. But, but it's an artistic influence. You know, I mean, it is an artistic uh, influence. There is, there is a, a lot to be said for the kinds of things that. Uh, people writing in Dragonlance and so forth, these the, the series that became enormously popular among a lot of people who later became either writers or, or presumably more diverse readers, shall we say. I, I, I do, to say something in support of Stephen Donaldson, he's a, I think he introduced a kind of dimension to this sort of fantasy, which was new, it was very gloomy uh, and a little bit depressing, uh, but he's a very serious writer who deals with uh, really unhappy characters in a way that um, yeah, was I mean, surprisingly popular at the time, considering how... It was astonishingly uh, popular. I mean, astonishingly popular. And I look back, and I, I, I'm still trying to work out what I think about Stephen Donaldson, the writer. You know, I mean, yes, he did win the World Fantasy Award for one of his short story collections. Mm-hmm. Um, but he wrote a book that I threw across a room in frustration... You know, one of his science novels, perhaps? Oh, no, no, they were too dreadful to even finish. Ah. Um, even the one person I knew who actually finished them warned me off starting them because they were that bad. Mm. Um, no, this was the uh, Mirror of Her Dreams Man Rides Through pair. Right. And I tried to read the first book, well, I did read a chunk of the first book of the final quartet in the Covenant mm. series, which was... Very difficult going is all I would say of it. It was a real slog to get through a chunk of it. So here we go. Here I am now arguing around, circling around the same subject. Because Do you sit there and go, is it the purity of artistic achievement, in which case none of these gentlemen really are on the table? Or is it something else? Well, I guess that's an interesting question because life achievement, as Ellen Asher received the Life Achievement Award for the Science Fiction Book Club. Uh, which was interestingly one of those mixed awards that was partly yep. for 
editing fantasy or selecting fantasy or selecting science fiction. And it seemed to almost everybody at the time to be a very well-deserved award because she shaped a generation of readers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and to, to some extent, uh, Betty Ballantyne, and certainly had Ian still been alive, he would have received one as well. I don't think there's any question that um, that their achievement in impacting, I hate to use that, I use that as a verb, oh my God, shoot me, uh, having an impact on uh, on several generations of readers. I mean, um, the, I don't think anybody would have questioned that. I think had Donald Walheim, as controversial as he was, I don't think he ever lived to see a World Fantasy Lifetime Achievement Award, but as controversial as he was, he had the kind of impact that you're describing on the field. He did. Uh, and what I would suggest to you is that one of the things that makes choosing nominees or proposing people for life achievement for the World Fantasy oh. Award is that it's a somewhat ill-defined award, and so you have to, as we were saying earlier about other, you know, the, the awards before, make a personal decision about what you feel it should be for and then nominate accordingly. It can be just, oh my gosh, I loved those books by Terry Brooks back in the, in the late 1970s. Huh. Nominate him. I mean, that's your, your prerogative, and you should. Or well, uh, Howard Waltrop, for crying out loud, give it to him. Oh, yeah. Howard's well, I mean, not, uh, never won. That's kind of appalling. That really is appalling. Um, and there are people who've been... Uh, I th- I'm, I'm pretty sure Madeline Lingle has a lifetime. Yes, she does. And that's, that's based on a very limited number of works, but works that almost everybody read. Yes. Well, that's it as well. I mean, is it that kind of cultural influence, um, which then pulls, again, these large-scale commercial writers back into the pack? Because that's a thing, right? You know, know, uh, that's the kind of influence they have. But then you you look at the people who who, who win, and I'm looking at a list now without reading through names, because that would take too long and be a bit boring. Uh Um... It's a bit all over the place. There are some people who, frankly, are insider winners. People not widely known to the, you know, the fantasy readership out in the world. Uh-huh. And that's fair enough. Uh, those people need to be not, you know, recognized at all as well. There are people who... I mean, I would argue that most fantasy readers who don't read deeply into the field are not aware of George Sithers or Donald M. Grant or people like that. No. Uh, and that, that's not to say they're not, not worthy, but just that mm. not widely known. And I don't think the life achievement changes that. Um, no, it doesn't. It, it, it gives recognition. I, I know the administrators of the award have wanted to encourage non-writers. They wanted to encourage recognition for people who are editors or artists or publishers or uh, uh, book club editors and that sort of thing. I, I don't think anybody, the year Leo and Diane Dillon won the award, uh, maybe not the only artist to win the award, but uh, maybe they are, I'm not sure. I don't think anybody would argue with that. They, did they have an impact on the field? Well, yes, but is it a literary impact? Probably not. No, no, they didn't have a literary impact, I don't think, but they had, had an important impact. Other, well, one or two other artists have won. I mean, for example, Stephen Fabian has won. Yeah, um, okay. and I would assume one day if he's not already, Michael Whalen will win. I would imagine. Yeah, that would seem logical. Here's uh, a question then: Yeah, if visual artists are going to be permitted, um, then why have the World Fantasy Awards so assiduously tried to exclude filmmakers? 
because the World Fantasy Awards themselves, or the World Fantasy Convention itself, excludes media. Um, it is a print-based... The World Fantasy Convention strongly prejudices, aims itself towards um, printed works of, of, you know, works of literature, and to some wow. degree allows in related works of art when they are paintings or jewelry, that kind of thing. If you like, to some degree, the same limitations that govern what goes into the dealer's room governs what goes into the Life Achievement Award. Uh I guess that's true, but you're basically saying an artist is only an artist if he or she does book covers or magazine covers. No, what I'm saying is an artist is only an art. Uh, sorry, an artist is only relevant to the World World Fantasy Life Achievement Award if they do that. Well, that strikes me as odd. I mean, uh, one Gary, of the, I'm looking. Gary, at Gary, 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 are you honestly telling me that's the only thing that's odd about the World Fantasy Convention? Well, no, and I say that uh, with but, with affection, but I mean honestly. Okay. So, I want to throw out the names of two artists, neither of whom have received or ever will receive a World Fantasy Award for Art, but who arguably have influenced writers as well as other artists. One is H.R. Giger. Yep. Uh, the other is Sid Mead, who is yep. a production designer for Blade Runner uh, and other films. The, the, the whole kind of cyberpunk look the whole kind of... Uh, which, which would be a science fiction near- achievement, by the way, not a fantasy achievement. Well, okay, Giger, it's... Um, it's hard to say where... I mean, the fact that Giger is best known for Alien as a science fiction film, but the bulk of his work is sort of weirdly Lovecraftian biomechanicals. However, you could make the, the argument you're trying to make about Maizaki as a visual artist and as a storyteller. I would do that, yes. I think that's I mean, absolutely given, true. of course, that he actually draws his stories... And there is a very, very distinctive look to the art that he creates. It's very beautiful. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know... But given that we don't tend to recognize uh, you know, you know, uh, media people, that would probably tend to place them outside of contention. And what's really... No, I, mean, I, I, yeah. I mean, you know, I would not have argued probably for Jim Henson had he uh, been alive, simply because you're dealing... You're getting far removed from the literary world at that point. Yes, you uh, are. My argument for Miyazaki is that you're not a... It, it's difficult to find a fantasy writer today who hasn't grown up on Miyazaki films. Yes. So, okay. We're, we, we are, of course, rambling wildly here because we're sort of casting around for the core of what we want to say about this. So, Do we agree that it should be... Well, what kind of life achievement would we give it for? Is it any form of life achievement or purely if you like, literary slash artistic? Um, that's the interesting question. I mean, do you, do you give a life achievement award for somebody who has uh, created a, a very effective business model or something? I don't know. Uh, I, I think, by and large, the life achievement award ought to fit in with the other awards in that it is, is a, an award for the creation or promotion of some form of art. Um, an editor who shapes an art form uh, possibly. Let me let's see if I can make a distinction. I don't know uh, who the president of Dell Magazines is these days. Uh, I know who Sheila Williams is. Um, and, and whoever the executive is way up there in, in Dell Magazines, I don't think would be a candidate. But um, Tom Doherty got it. But Tom Doherty runs a specific 
Yep. He, but Tom Doherty is not at the top of that pyramid. You know, he's not at the top of the St. Martin's pyramid. He is. He runs a personal publishing house of the kind that doesn't exist anymore. I mean, Tom Doherty and Bill Schaefer and um, and, and, and 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 Jared, what's his name at, at, at Centipede? Um, Walters. Yes, Jared Walters. All do something which is very specifically a service to the field as a field, and they're all people who know the field well and who have. Who, who, who promote it in important ways. I don't necessarily think the business executives that give them the freedom to do that are at all interested in the award uh, or, or have anything to do with artistic decisions. If Tom Doherty, who actually I think is much less like those people than you say he is, because after all, in the end, of the, yes, he said it started up his own publishing company as a mass trade publisher. And yet, but he then ultimately sold it to a multinational and turned it into an imprint of a multinational, right? For, right. That, that he works for. Um, isn't he more like, say, a Malcolm Edwards in some ways? Mm-hmm. Who who has not been nominated for this, but would would be a very worthy winner. Actually, there's another thing you see. I mean, we talk about, around this, and we're not really coming up. So I apologize, listeners, but then there's the what about the not Americans? That's an interesting question because it came up, uh, it's come up a couple of times uh, with the World Fantasy Award judges, one of whom is supposed to be a non-American, I think one of whom is supposed to be European yeah, yeah. or Asian, uh, and, and, and you begin to realize how uh, influential some editors are that most of us in the United States have never heard of. Yeah. But I mean, how's Robert Holdstock not a life achievement holder, for example? I think he simply died too soon. How is Christopher Priest not a life achievement holder? Priest perceived to be a science fiction writer because his early career was more in that direction. Uh-huh. Um, and I'm sure if I were to stop and think for... I mean, I, I realize in the, the defense of the awards, because I'm not trying to attack them, I'm looking now at the nominees, and if you look at the winners, recipients for the last few years, Tanith Lee, uh-huh. Susan Cooper, Alan Garner, Angelica Garodisher, Brian Lumley, um, that's the last few years, they're all non-North American recipients. Before that, they're a lot thinner on the ground, I have to say. But there's been a recent change, which is nice. Uh, yeah, I think there has been an, an attempt to make it look more like a world fantasy award. And I think that to some extent, the whole movement in the field with more international fiction, the fact that uh, in, in science fiction, for example, that Lu Sejun gets nominated for a Nebula yeah. and a Hugo Award, uh, the fact that we have uh, well, Nadia Korafor is, is, is an American, but clearly a very Nigerian, uh, Sudanese, African-influenced work. And with writers like Karen Lord and Toby Buckle, uh, you have a whole group of people more or less forcing the field to look outside it. And uh, apart from major literary figures like uh, Murakami. Yeah. Uh, so to some extent, the, the, the field is simply catching up with the world, and it, it, it's, it's long overdue. There are lots of people who in the past you know, really should have gotten the award when they were. Angela Carter should have gotten one um, and died too soon again. Yep. Um, but um, the number of uh, the, the number of Life Achievement Award winners that are non-Anglo is still pretty limited, I'm afraid. And the same thing's true with the Best Novel yes. and Best Novel and Fiction nomination. Yeah. Uh, but hopefully we'll, yeah, that will change. I don't, I don't think there's, there's, well, there's never been an Australian Life Achievement uh, nominee, to my knowledge, uh, nor has one ever been, you know, even discussed. Despite the fact that probably you could pull in a couple of names together if you were to think about it, um, 
I'm sure that there are any number of English nominees. I mean, how old is Jeff Ryman now? Hmm. Good don't, question. I, I don't. Book? I think he's over sixty. You know, so he would be in the mix, and if he is, would be stunningly appropriate to win the the Life Achievement Award. I think he would be very appropriate, and again, I think he's perceived largely as a science fiction writer. The other question that comes up, you mentioned Australian writers, and, and then you get to the question of mainstream writers getting recognition because of having done some work in this field, and the Australian writer who is best known for varieties of magic realism is Peter Carey. Yes. And now, I'm sure he'd be, be bemused to receive a Life Achievement Award from the World Fantasy Awards, but still. Uh, you never know. Uh you just have no sense of what these uh, what people's attitudes were. I mean, uh, the, uh, people thought that uh, that Doris Lessing would have been enormously haughty mm. being invited as a guest of honor at at the uh, British World WorldCon whenever it was, and she was absolutely delighted about it. She thought it was the coolest thing ever. Yeah. Um, I think if Joyce I think if Joyce Carol Oates were to get nominated for something like this, well, okay, that may be an extreme case. She's written a significant amount of fantasy. Yes. She's certainly a major American writer. Uh, would she be bemused? I don't think we can afford to think that way. Uh, you're recognizing a person for their work, not because you think they'll come. I used to belong to an organization called the Popular Culture Association, yep. which was an enormous academic organization that uh, decided one year it was going to give out a Popular Culture Achievement Award. And they were going to give them out to people like Steven Spielberg and the Mary Tyler Moore one year. And, and nobody ever showed up for them. And after a few years of doing this, they started calling up people in advance and saying, if we, give, if we give you the award, will you come? And if you won't come, you won't get the award. And that's <sighs> kind of, you can't get into that kind of thinking. Yeah, well, this is it. I mean, oh, I don't know. There's, there's no good answer. I, mean, I, I now look back and I, I probably would change my Life Achievement Award nominees that I put in on my list because I'd forgotten a few. And this is the issue. You, you, you're not that aware of who's been honored already, always. And people just slip your mind. Yeah? And they suddenly go, yeah. oh, should Ed Bryant have received a Life Achievement Award? Interesting question. Should Howard Waltrop? I don't think there's any doubt with Howard Waltrop, but in a sense, Howard Waldrop's being overlooked by awards is so in keeping with his own self-image. <laughs> well, that doesn't mean that you should give in to it. And no, you shouldn't give in to it at all. Uh, and he would be a very, very worthy recipient of these things. And given what everybody thinks about... Well, if you were to go out, out on the street and explain to anybody what a World Fantasy Award was, so they wouldn't think it was some kind of porn award, right? Well, yeah, uh, uh, if you explain that you're talking about fantasy fiction, I bet that they would either think that you're talking about stories about some kind of elves and elves and fairies or epic fantasy. But the awards don't really ever recognize epic fantasy much, do they? Generally, they haven't. No, generally, there's been a that's one of the biases in the awards, and maybe a bias uh, in, in 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 the pattern of judges that existed in the past. I think that. Um, um, a part of this is a definition of what epic fantasy is, but you've, you've kind of given us a working definition of post-Tolkienian, Terry Brooks, Raymond Feist kind of uh, commercial fantasy. Mm-hmm. Is commercial fantasy the same thing as epic fantasy? No, it's I mean, not. Is, no. Is, okay, what's the difference? Well, for a start, commercial fantasy could include paranormal romance, could inc- include any kind of fantasy story. Commercial fantasy is just fantasy that sells, isn't it? 
Well, I don't know if people who read paranormal romances even think of them as fantasy novels. But then surely they are. Well, they are. From Then you're getting into literary parsing of definitions. I think people who read paranormal romances think they read paranormal romances. There's maybe, a whole well, category. Well, maybe, maybe they do, but, but my, my point would be, in fact, it's you're who parsing. I'm saying it's fantasy, right? It's got wolves and it's got, like Laurel K. Hamilton. It's got werewolves in it. It's fantasy, right? Right. Yeah. But we wouldn't consider it. And we wouldn't consider it epic fantasy. Would we? I mean, you know, can you see people like let's look around Tad, Tad Williams? Okay. Can you see um, well, again the Eddings Feist that whole tradition not present? Hmm. Hmm. And the closest we come to it generally are people who don't write that kind of epic fantasy at all. They write epic fiction, but they don't necessarily write epic fantasy. Uh, the best example I can think of, and he tends not to get nominated for that anyway, is Guy Gavriel Kay, who is a dear friend, so this is horribly complicated, you know, compromised, but is a very, very fine writer, uh, and has written epic fantasy, but doesn't tend to write mm. the most commercial kind of epic fantasy. Well, it raises one of the issues that comes up uh, with our, our new friend Tom Holt slash K.J. Parker. Uh, it's it's not even really fantasy in a material sense. It clearly takes place in an imaginary version of Europe, which is somewhere between the Middle Ages and the late Renaissance. Yep. Um, and it's very literary. And I think the problem... This, this is getting at the other side of that question. Because you were talking about if you go too far into the direction of commercial epic fantasy, the kind of best-selling fantasy that, that, get, that sells a lot of copies and tends not to get awards... The other side is fantasy, which is so close to literary work, uh, i.e. Guy K, for example, uh, that uh, it, it, it may get overlooked um, uh, for being too literary. You can, you can either be too commercial or too literary, and there's this kind of Goldilocks zone in between in which you will get awards. I wonder if the 1991 World Fantasy Awards Best Novel Ballot stands as an interesting example of what the awards are like. You must be looking at it right now or you wouldn't have said that. That's true. This didn't come <laughs> off the top of my head. This is just blind. This is me also riffing like, oh, this might work. Here are the nominees for uh, Best Fantasy Novel, Gary. Only Begotten Daughter by James Morrow. Oh. Thomas the Rhymer by Ellen Kushner. Uh-huh. Good Omens by Terry Pratchett and Neil Gaiman. Mary Riley by Valerie Martin. And Tagana by Guy Gavriel Kay. That's a very interesting, varied list. It's a very varied list. Um, now, it's interesting because you have a religious satire from James Morrow, a very right. clever one. You have a beautiful fairy tale retelling from uh, Ellen Kushner, her finest book, by, I think. A mm-hmm. comic fantasy, a very pithy and uh, substantial comic fantasy, but a comic fantasy from Gaiman and Pratchett. Uh, a, a, a Frankenstein retelling riff from um, Valerie Martin, if I recall no, the, Mary, the book correctly. Mary Riley, I believe, is a retelling of Dr. Jekyll and Hyde. Jekyll and Hyde, okay. And then you have probably what's the book most likely to be considered an epic fantasy on that list, Tagana. Tagana. Which is a spectacularly good book from my recollection. I've not read it in 15 years or so, but I remember thinking it was his major work. 
No. But you also the spectrum we're talking about because the Mary Riley, for example, was published as a literary work. It wasn't necessarily seen as uh, fantasy. It was it, it was in that same category that in the past year, for example, Stephanie Feldman's The Angel of Losses was published in. So you have something drawn from sort of the literary community, something drawn from the literary end of fantasy with Guy K, something which is comic fantasy, which very seldom gets nominated, but that was a very funny novel. And then you're right. A more or less traditional fairy tale uh, uh, retelling, which uh, which Ellen Kirshner does as well as anybody, and um, what was the first, what was the other one? Uh, in other words, my, my point is there's a spectrum of kinds of fiction represented there. It's not one epic fantasy against another fantasy. It's not one comic fantasy against another comic fantasy. There's a real eclecticism in that list, and I like the list. Oh, it's a great, and that's a brilliant list. Brilliant list, but. I would say to you that probably if you talk to the man on the street today, the book they'd recognize as being fantasy would be Tagana. Well, I think people would see Good Omens that way. It's funny. Comedy gets treated differently in so different many ways. It's, it's undeniably fantasy, yes. But comedy and satire just get looked at differently uh, for whatever reason. I guess that's true. I mean, because James Morrow is also somebody who doesn't quite fit anywhere else. No. Uh, it's a it's it's a it's a satire. It's 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 no it more fantasy than some of Jeremy Levin's books were. Well, no, exactly, um, or just as much. You know, however you want to look at it. Now, interesting question. On this, will test your memory. What won? Oh, what would have won in nineteen ninety one? In fact, I'll, I'll give you the least fair thing. Could have, and should have. That's not fair at all. Uh, well, okay. Here, here's my point. None of those books can be compared with the other ones. I, I, which, okay. one those, which one of those books best meets the definition of literary fantasy as we've been talking about it during this podcast is probably Tagana. Yeah. Now I can tell you that for a start, this particular ballot, and I stumbled upon it by blind chance, uh-huh. has four of my favorite books on it. Ah. So I don't have. Uh, an enormous horse. I mean, I genuinely adore Thomas the Rhymer. I love Tagana. Only Begotten Daughter is one of my two favorite Jim Morrow novels. And I, I loved Good Omens. So I honestly... It was a tie between Jim Morrow and Alan Kushner. That is so odd. Yeah. Because the, the, there's nothing... I, I, it's, it's odd and sensible at the same time. There's nothing those books have in common. <laughs> That's true. And, I mean, I take my hat off. I mean, the judges were Emma Bull, Orson Scott Card, Richard Lehman, Farron Miller, and Daryl Schweitzer. Huh. What a curious task. So we've, we've rambled to no effect about these awards for an hour, Gary. We haven't even gotten to talk things about nominating novels and novellas. and. Well, you skipped out on novels, I was going to say. Look, let, let's do a quick thing, right? Okay, we'll do a quick thing. A quick thing. And the quick thing will be, let's finish the discussion. Well, hang on. Let's bring it to, to, to first of all, let's bring life achievement to a head. Make your own okay. decision about what should go or shouldn't, dear listener, as you will, uh, should be nominated. Gary's campaigning this year for Jonathan Carroll for life achievement, yes? Yes, and I think people should look at Ginger Buchanan's career. Okay, and I'm going to campaign for, hmm, Howard Waldrop or Robert Silverberg or C.J. Cherry. Probably one okay. of those three, okay? Um, maybe right. all of them. In fact, they, two people get nominated. Yeah. So out of that batch, or anybody else, you know, that's who we're going to nominate. So there, there we go. So that's, 
set that aside. Don't forget 31st of May. Now, novel. Our, our friend Ian uh, Mond is going to have to sit down and read whichever of the world fantasy nominated novels that he hasn't yet read by the time uh-huh. we get to there. So what, what do you think he's going to be nominated? You're, you're suggesting Bathing the Lion. I'm going to put The Goblin Emperor by Catherine Addison on there, which is one of my favorite fantasy novels of 2014. And I have to say, it's a bit of a cheat because it's up for the Hugo, but nonetheless, yeah. here you go. One that I think might get overlooked simply because it's not a major press is Beautiful Blood, Lucius Shepard. It's on my list. I nominated it. Okay, good. Okay, my turn. Clarial yes, by did. Garth Nix. I think Clarial would be a very worthy World Fantasy Award nominee. I think it is his most accomplished novel. I think it is a mature, interesting, different take on his whole old kingdom world. I think it it has the best of the lyricism of his best prose brought into one of his more interesting and unusual things. It's also a genuinely unusual fantasy novel in the sense that it takes a complete different approach to the arc of the character, as James Bradley was discussing on our own podcast earlier yeah. in the year, I think. And for that reason, a very compelling nominee and would be, and in fact, is on my ballot. Excellent. Should we... I, I've got think, to... will, do you want to make any predictions as to who will get nominated? What they always do during Oscar seasons. Oh, gosh. I, I need to have studied more. Okay, let's start. Catherine Addison will, will get nominated. Uh-huh. Absolutely, I'm sure she will. I think Joe Abercrombie will for half a king. I think you're probably right. I think there's a reasonable chance that Cameron Hurley will for the Mirror Empire. Maybe, but I'm much less sure about that. Uh You're looking at your books for 2014. So I can see what Gary's doing. I'm looking at the local... A book that should be there that I don't know that will be there is Cuckoo's Song by Frances Harding. Uh Uh-huh which came out last year. She's just had a brand new book come out in the last week. But um, she is a remarkable, truly remarkable writer. And yeah, deserves to be on that list. Now, what else have you got that you think should be up, Gary? Can can I mention one that I haven't read? I think the third third volume of Lev Grossman's Magicians trilogy is likely to be on the ballot. uh, And only because... I didn't get because because you make me review books that you send me. I didn't get the second one, and I've not read the second or the third one. But Love Grossman really was doing interesting things with the idea of fantasy. Uh, True, a literary, no, a literary fantasy novel about fantasy uh, novels, in effect. Uh, yeah, I think um, City of Stairs by Robert Jackson Bennett gets is, is getting a lot of press. It's a chance. Uh huh. Um. Other than that, I don't know. I'm, maybe Memory Garden by Mary Rickert. The two that I wondered about are Memory Garden by Mary Rickert, uh, because it didn't get a lot of attention at the time, and one which is more or less in that same category as uh, Genevieve Valentine's Girls at the Kingfisher Club, because it's not quite a fantasy. Yeah. Uh, but again, it's a, it's a fairy tale redaction, just without magic in it. And I could also see, uh, based on the support I've seen around for it, The Emperor's Blades by Brian Staveley, uh, poss- mm. possibly getting up. I read that just last week and found it very enjoyable. I'm reading the sequel at the moment, so yeah. Okay. Um, I mean, I have to say, I don't see a runaway favorite for it, except for maybe the Addison. Uh, that very well may be. I, 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 I can't predict. Uh, 
Mm. I'll be very, very, very curious to see what the judges come up with. It'll be interesting to figure out, it's always interesting when the ballot comes out, to figure out which are the judges' nominees and which are the popular nominees. You can usually pick them. At least in the top, at the top of it. I mean, it's like from 1991. I'm pre- fairly sure the game in Pratchett was a popular vote. Yeah, as worthy as it was, but nonetheless. And, and for example, my guess this year is that if the Lucia Shepherd Beautiful Blood gets on the ballot, it will be the judges because it simply wasn't seen by enough readers. That could be true. That that could be true. Um, I was going to say, by the way, if you know, if people want to know, do the judge, do the public's choice make a difference? The year that I was a judge one of the popular votes was a winner for best novel. We tied, well, there, was, there was a tie for best novel, and yeah. the best no, it, was, it was one of the best novel winners, so yeah, it makes a difference. Well, I mean, to some extent, you were right when you said earlier in the podcast that uh, the judges always want the popular vote to be something they would have nominated anyway, because that gives them another slot to fill. Yeah. Uh, well, so, that's, so that's because the judges, and I don't, I don't think they're wrong, I mean, ju- judges... It's very individual, but they tend to have a kind of interesting view about what those nomination slots are for. You know, the, the, the average person out there who sees a ballot thinks it's a simple assessment of excellence by a group of five people, right? With the two, with the two mm. popular votes in. But my experience is that it's a little bit more complicated than that. That uh, judges start wanting to work out what sh- deserves the attention, what they should promote that might otherwise be overlooked. That becomes a factor, which is interesting as to whether it should or not, but I, but I know it does. I think the judges, or at least I was well aware of the fact that we were getting very interesting books from very small presses that we knew were not going to have a chance of getting a popular nomination. Um, and that would include some limited edition subterranean press books, some Tartarus press books, some books that uh, came out from uh, Ticonderoga, for example. Uh, books that are not likely to get a lot of popular nominations, but that uh, are deserving of attention. So, yeah. yeah, absolutely, you want to call attention to books. What, and there's kinds of books that have, have challenges. I mean, uh, towards the end of last year, 12th Planet Press here in Australia published a collection by Rosaline Love mm-hmm. uh, called Secret Lives of Books. Now, it's a very good book, and it, it's a terrific thing because after a long absence for writing, you know, it dragged Rosaline back into writing, which is terrific. Right. But it's a, four, it's a, it's a short collection. It's like four stories. Uh-huh. Can you see a short collection beating out a full collection? Probably not. I, I don't know. I mean, one of the things that, uh, you know, another question that comes up with, with this would be Open Road's uh, collection of, what, three or four Octavia Butler stories. Mm. Uh, one of which has not been seen before and is very good. Uh, and um, it's really, I guess it's only two stories, isn't it? Two. Yeah. Uh, so, is that a collection? I don't know. It's a diptych collection. <laughs> it's a thing. But anyway, th- we will find out in the coming months, dear readers, when, when or listeners, when um, the World Fantasy Award ballot is actually announced. See, this is a new thing. We're, see, we're, we're talking about less about awards. Not really. Um, but at least we're talking about the awards beforehand. See, we didn't even talk about everything up for the, memor- uh, the, the John W. Campbell or the Sturgeon. No, we didn't talk about those either. And that's something we could get back to. But what we're talking about now are who are the... Con- this is following up with what we were doing uh, the last time the two of us were on by ourselves. We were talking a little bit about canon formation. And we're talking now about the Lifetime Achievement Awards, which in some way is a way of recognizing who are the people that shape the field that we have today. Yeah. Uh, and you make an interesting argument that those people 
include, in any objective sense, writers like Terry Brooks, who may not get recognized, but they may also include um, writers that um, are otherwise overlooked, like Howard Waldrop. So, um, Well, if Terry Brooks and Howard Waldrop, if um, Catherine Kurtz and mm-hmm. um, Joanna Russ, if, the, if people at these commercial ends of spectrums influence the field... And they do, because the field is more than just what shows up on the World Fantasy Ballot or any other award ballot. Well, then, shouldn't something like Lifetime Achievement Awards be open enough to recognize that fact? I think maybe they should. I think they should, and I think they have been. I think they have... uh, No, they're not. They're plainly not. Yeah, the the idea is not uh, necessarily to... uh, honor the most popular writers. I mean, I don't know whether... Um, I mean, one of the persons that would be interesting, I have no idea what his age is, but somebody who's had a lot of influence on the field in the last few years is uh, Gregory Maguire. Yep, sure. I don't know his age. Yeah. But I mean, but do you see Glenn Cook getting a nomination, uh, getting Royal Fantasy Award? Life Achievement? Probably not, but depending on the judges in a given year, that's, uh, that's a possibility. In, in retrospect... I, I will go out there and I'll stand beside Steve Erickson and say, yes, I think he deserves one. And I think mm-hmm. I could make a case. Terry Brooks and Eddings... And, I mean, if, I remember saying to someone, they looked at me appalled, I said, if I was going to be a chairman for a World Fantasy Award convention, and I was going to invite anyone, and this is when Eddings was still alive, I would have invi- invited Brooks, Eddings, and Donaldson as, to be my guests of honor. I don't think there's any problem with that. I th- but but you're, you're making a distinction between who's a guest of honor. Well, not really. No, I'm not. I'm not really doing that at all. What I'm saying to you is... No, okay. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is that the kind of thing that gets choose to get recognized isn't that kind of thing. Isn't populist epic fantasy, despite how important that is to the science fiction, to the publishing, publishing generally, to the fantasy field, whatever else. Um, we would rather recognize... Italo Calvino than Terry Brooks. Well, there's always the aspect of wanting to gain respectability for your field by honoring people that you wish were part of your field. I mean, if, you know, if Borges were alive, he would no doubt be one of the top people yeah. on this. Oh, he he did get one, didn't he? Never mind. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so yeah, I mean, it's and. and He's somebody who, as far as I can tell, was very sympathetic toward fantasy and science fiction and genre literature. But nevertheless, when you're giving an award to somebody like that, you're giving an award to yourself for being a field that has somebody like that more or less in it. Well, I, I think we should perhaps consider, you know, sort of cast our net more widely. But also, I mean, take other factors into account. I don't know. We, we're not going to get to the end of this one, Gary. I don't think, I don't think there's an actual answer. Well, I mean, people listening should send in their own suggestions because I have this nagging feeling right now at the end of the podcast that I just completely overlooked at least a half dozen important names that I should have thought of. Of course you did, and of course I did too. And someone will turn around and say, well, hang on, didn't you realize that so-and-so is 70 years old now and Uh has had enormous effect? You go, oh, wow, yeah, of course, yeah. Exactly. Now, we, I mean, I, I will be honest, I've been painfully aware of the fact that we've named far too few women during this conversation. That's and, absolutely true. That's absolutely true. And that's a reflection of our own attitudinal issues that we need to keep working on. But also, 
you know, it's like, okay, well, I mean, some, some of the people I would think of actually have already received Life Achievement Awards. You know, the Patty McKillops and whatever else. But, she was the first one I thought of when we were going to talk about this, and I thought, oh, yeah, wait a minute, she just got one. But then Robin, <laughs> Robin McKinley doesn't have one. Who doesn't? Robin McKinley. Robin McKinley was on my list. Why didn't I mention her? I don't know, because you're, you're crazy. Because she's no, extraordinary. I looked her up. She's, she's in the age range, even. Uh, yes. I think she might be. Yeah. And what's more, I'd also say to you, dear listeners, if you've never read Deerskin by Robin McKinley, go read Deerskin. Mm-hmm. That's a great book. A genuinely great book. So, you know, there are people out there. Anyway. Enough of this. We shall go away. We shall have another podcast another week, Gary. We are over the hour. And if we we keep going, they'll think we're one of those talky Australian podcasts that goes on for hours and hours. Oh, we wouldn't want to be like that. (laughs) Don't you you people in Australia have extra hours in the day that you can do things like that with? Well, well, we do. That is true. I mean, we're a remarkable country. But, you know, I've noticed that some of my... um, my friends who have podcasts here in this country sometimes go on for two hours and more, and we can't be doing that. No, I, 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 I completely would. And next, I mean, next I week we'll have to work okay. out what we're going to do. What? What? Sorry. I feel like I became incoherent 15 minutes ago. So what? What would an hour about that like? <laughs> that, that merely leaves the question of you know what we shall talk about next week. But I guess that will be a question for next week. Next week's Cood Street podcast. Yes. Until then. I'll talk to you soon, my friend. Talk to you soon.